Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, and we have an interesting conversation for you today about what is a MEC or a Modified Endowment Contract. Bruce, good morning. Thank you for joining me for this interesting topic today. Good morning. Uh, This topic may not seem like it's something that uh, people would really get excited about listening about, but it it is one of the tenets of an infinite banking concept. So uh, I think it is very important for people to understand it. And... uh, Luckily, most of the um, mutual companies uh, will actually prevent it, but not but not all. And so you you really need to understand and, and see what you're uh, really understand it. So so you when you're looking for a company or a producer that you can identify whether it is a mech or not. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this topic, um, really a deep dive on anything life insurance related, is maybe for a specific type of person, right? So maybe you're just hearing about infinite banking and you say, I love that. I love the idea of being able to store cash, be able to access and use this policy by taking a loan against the policy, putting those dollars to work in another place. I love that it's tax favored. I love that it's going to give me a death benefit as well. I love that it's liquid, it's safe, and it's growing faster than bank rates if I put my money just into a savings account. I love that. And let's go. So you might be that person. And if so, you're probably not doing a deep dive on all the technical aspects of how to make a life insurance policy perform and work best for you. But I would encourage you, even if you are in that category or that quadrant of people to listen, because as you're continuing to build your knowledge, you're in a position of more control because you understand how something works. And so we're going to do as best as possible, as best as we can about um, we are going to do as good of a job as possible of making this interesting and applicable to you. Because I think the only time when information becomes boring is when it's not relevant. And sometimes you might just say, well, my producer or my life insurance agent should be making sure that it works properly for me. The challenge is sometimes if you are working with somebody who doesn't make sure everything's working well for you, you can end up with something that you were not looking for. So if you are the person who wants to deep dive and wants to understand all the inner workings, this is going to be like really cool and super juicy to you. And if you're in that category of people, then please go ahead and chime in, ask your questions. And if you're over there, I would encourage you to go ahead and get started because something is better than nothing. But let's really start um, kind of down this road of we're going to answer some questions. What is a MEC? What is a modified endowment contract? Why does it exist? Why do the IR, does the IRS have rules around what this is called and what it's not called? How does that affect your tax treatment? And when might you not need to run away from a MEC like it's the plague? Maybe you want a modified endowment contract in some unique cases. So that's what our hope is to answer for you today and to make this interesting. For you as well. So, Bruce, what is a modified endowment contract? Let's kind of unpack this first. 
Yeah. So let's, let's start with the fact that uh, life insurance has been around uh, a lot longer than the, uh, the IRS tax code. So. And what so do we mean whether- by that? So life insurance has been around in most cases, a lot of companies like 160, 170 years towards 200 and the IRS tax code came into place in 1913. 1913. 1913. And so my point of saying that is life insurance is a lot of people would say that uh, they're doing it. Be- one of the main reasons they're doing it is because of the tax favorable uh, situation you have with it. But I would say that life insurance has been pr- has proven that it was um, a great foundation of a person's life, even before the IRS decided to treat it tax favorably. And mm-hmm. so what happened was the IRS put in some rules that said, you know, that the growth of a contract would would grow tax deferred and you could access it tax free. Mm-hmm. And that was and that was fine for years and years and years. And then a lot of these contracts had fixed in interest rates for loans. So in the early 80s, many of our listeners were not even born then, but in the early 80s, uh, as interest rates spiked during the Jimmy Carter administration, and it was it was actually caused a lot because of Nixon taking us off the gold standard in the early 70s, we had, we had really bad inflation in the 70s, and it kind of peaked in 1981 or 82. I think it was 81. And so what people were doing is, first of all, they had the they had these contracts or they were starting these contracts because they knew they could borrow at 5% and they were getting dividends of 10, 11, 12%. So they were creating this arbitrage where they had a fixed interest rate and they were then taking that and... Uh, getting a really safe rate of return in double digits. Which well, that's IR- really nice. Right. <laughs> and it was actually one of the reasons, and a lot of people don't know this, uh, there was, we only have a couple dozen mutual life insurance companies left. It was one of the reasons a lot of these companies had to demutualize in the late 80s, early 90s, because they, uh, they had allowed this to happen where they were having money that was growing greater than what the interest rate they had coming in for charging for the loans. And so they had to get additional capital. So a lot of these companies that uh, were in good financial shape until this happened, um, they actually um, had to demutualize to get more capital and it became stock companies. A lot of people don't realize that. So in 1988, Congress, and this is where Nelson Nash who you've many people listened to the show before know I, he was a personal mentor of mine. He would always talk about, you know, the IRS would, would tax us and then they would make additional rules to actually give us a break on those taxes. He would say this all the time. So they tax us and then they give us rules to give us a break on those taxes. And, and Nelson says, well, that kind of behavior, shouldn't you be suspicious of what they're trying to accomplish? And uh, it made perfect sense. <clears throat> and then they give us those breaks and then they get mad at people for using those breaks. Or as I we think refer maybe they, to. 
Go ahead. Incentives. It was re, we refer to those on the shows a lot of times as incentives because that's what they are actually referred to. A lot of people out there to try to make it seem nefarious say they're loopholes. Well, they're not loopholes. Uh, they're in the tax code. And it's very clear to, to see this. So the Congress said when this happened in the 80s, they said, no, this is not the intent of making this tax ad- advantage. The intent of making this tax advantage was that it would incent people to take life insurance out on themselves so if something that would happen to them, that their families would be taken care of with the death benefit. Thus, the state, the state we're talking about as collective states in the United States, would not have the burden of taking care of the family. So it was an incentive to take care of your own family so that the welfare system would not have to take care of them. So that was great. Um, But what happened was they said, when people were actually stuffing a lot of money into this and getting this huge interest or and dividend payment, they then were doing it over, just over and over again, and stuffing a lot in. And the IRS was saying, "This isn't the intention, so we're gonna we're gonna call this an investment if it doesn't follow these rules." And that's where the modified endowment contract rules came in nineteen. 19- 88. You know, I've heard it said that the MEC laws and rules really were because the IRS saw that a lot of wealthy individuals were putting a lot of money into life insurance and drawing down the death benefit as low as possible and overfunding them in the way of using it specifically for a savings tool and using it not only to grow capital, but then to borrow against it and use it just as if you would um, in many ways, like a savings account, except you're leveraging your cash in the life insurance policy. And what was happening is the death benefit was down so low that the premium was up so high. They were saying, well, you're not really getting a death benefit commensurate with the amount of cash that you're putting in. Therefore, we're going to call this not really life insurance because you're not using it for the purpose of the death benefit. And in many ways, a lot of the wealthy people were doing this specifically for the tax advantages of being able to use the capital in loans tax-free, use it tax-free. I mean, it grows tax-deferred, but your use of the loan is tax-free. And so the way that that was working, there said the IRS was saying, hey, we need to stop this because the death benefit needs to be higher. If it's really called life insurance, we need a higher death benefit so that it is going to pay out and take care of the families. Is that, is that how you see it as well, Bruce? Oh yeah, very, very much so. And and then the argument comes all these distractors of life insurance, cash value, life insurance being uh, a terrible place to put your money. Um, When we've talked about Dave Ramsey on the show, talking about this over and over, he's made a career off of this. I just find it interesting that if it's such a terrible place to put your money, why do wealthy people put their money in it over and over and over again? Because they understand it and Dave doesn't understand it. And so, yes, this is why they stepped in and they stepped in and said, hey, we don't think this is life insurance anymore the way uh, you described what way, Rachel, you just described it because the death benefit isn't the main driver of the particular policy. So what they did is they said, we are going to put this 
through what's called a seven pay test room. And so they're basically going to say, we're going to look at it as in, this is a seven pay policy. You're not going to, you're not going to pay anything past seven years. They do allow you to catch up within the seven years. So if you, if you do not put uh, the entire amount of premium in one year and you can come back and catch up during the first seven years. Um, and then the death benefit has to be commiserate or a certain height or certain level to actually satisfy the mod- modified endowment contract rules. These rules are fairly complicated. Um, I've been doing this since the 80s. I haven't, I've never even looked into it to see how they're calculated because the, the major mutual companies that we deal with all calculate these. And in my understanding from talking to the actuaries that design these, they actually say that um, some of the companies will actually put additional um, I guess spread or um, they don't they don't go all the way up to the to the modified endowment contract rules just in case something else would happen. Uh, so kind of protect the company and protect the uh, the consumer even further than the modified endowment contract rules uh, do. And then if there's a material if there's a material change, the MEC rules start over again. And what would a material change be? Well, one of the ways to get around a modified endowment contract rule, if you don't have enough death benefit, is to actually add a term rider onto it. Now, if you've been following this show, you understand that an infinite banking concept or any whole life insurance contract can be made up of a base policy which is basically the premium that you're paying for the entire life of the contract, a paid up additions rider, which is optional, which is a way to buy more paid up insurance along the way. And if those two, if those two actually, the amount of premium you put in for those two actually causes a policy to mech or become a modified endowment contract, what you simply can do is add a term rider for a specific term. In other words, add more death benefit mm-hmm. to, to temporarily raise the death benefit so that you can place that amount of premium into the, the contract. Mm-hmm. Now, some people might once again be screaming, oh, this is a loophole. This is the way to get around it. This is This is something that the company did to get around these rules and so on and so forth, which is not true because the term rider existed well before, well before the MEC rules existed. And the reason it existed is because, and we talk about this all the time, human life value. So because whole life insurance um, gives you a guaranteed amount for your entire life, obviously the premium is higher than for a term that might be only for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So what you could do even before the modified endowment contract rules was say, Hey, I need more life insurance for until this cash value life insurance uh, policy grows death benefit wise by the paid up additions rider. I'm going to put a term rider on it. If that term rider, not if, but when that term rider falls off, that's a material change. Mm-hmm. And then the and then the modified endowment contract rules have to be recalculated. Another popular uh, material change is something called a reduced paid up, 
where you decide to stop paying premiums into your contract. And in order to do that, the actuaries at the insurance company have to decide how much do I need to reduce the death benefit so that it is paid up for the for the life of the contract. So and that's called a material change. And when that happens, the modified endowment uh, rules have to be recalculated. You know, this whole idea of what is a mech was first explained to me in this way, and I'll try to illustrate as easily as possible, that if you had a specific amount of death benefit, let's just say a million dollars of death benefit, the least you could pay for that death benefit amount would be down here on the bottom, the the floor. And for that million dollars of death benefit, that least you could pay would be term insurance. And term insurance gives you just a death benefit, no living benefits. So no ability to, to use your cash along the way. But it's a sliding scale because there's an infinite way to design this million dollars of death benefit. And the higher up you go, the more benefits you get. At the very top is whole life insurance and specifically infinite banking whole life insurance because you're not only getting the million dollars of death benefit, but you're paying more cash for that death benefit in order to obtain all of the living benefits, which are things like the ability to have tax favorable growth, the ability to use that cash while you're living. So not only do you have access to borrow against your capital just because you have cash value, but then you can also repay on a schedule of your choosing. All of these benefits though come with sliding up that sliding scale of how much do you want to pay for the million dollars of death benefit. But there's a cap now because of the MEC rules that if you go past the maximum you can pay, so if the floor is paying uh, term premiums for that million dollars of death benefit, the ceiling would be paying the most overfunding a whole life insurance policy that you possibly could for a million dollars of death benefit. But if you go through the ceiling, at the ceiling is the modified endowment contract line. And what happens is if you go through that line, you still have life insurance, but it's treated differently for the purposes of taxation. So when you look at how to fund a life insurance policy, some people would just say, well, let's just go the cheapest route possible. That's going to give them just term insurance, no living benefits. But if you slide that scale up to the maximum efficient contract, not to be confused with the modified endowment contract, but a maximum efficient contract, that's the most premium you can put in for that amount of death benefit. The reason people love using life insurance is a lot because of the death benefit, but also for the living benefits that are tax advantaged. But when you cross that threshold into modified endowment contract territory, now the IRS is saying, this isn't specifically for the purpose of the death benefit. What you're trying to do is you're trying to use this just as a savings tool. You're downplaying the death benefit so much that you are using this for more of a purpose of a savings tool. And so your death benefit still will be tax-free. That's fine. That's life insurance. But if you want to use your cash along the way, if you want to take a policy loan, now anything that you borrow beyond your cost basis that you've put into the policy, you're going to pay tax on. And oh, by the way, you're going to have additional penalties if you withdraw money before age 59 and a half. So they're treating it a lot more like a 401k 
or an IRA, and you're not getting the same true tax-advantaged benefit of being able to use your cash along the way if you fund right beneath that MEC threshold. Yeah, that's, that's very, that's, yeah, that's very, very true. And um, you, just to clear one thing up, uh, and you, you, you said it perfectly, but I think there's probably people out there that are going to say, now, wait a minute. Um, when you collateralize and get a loan, you never have to pay uh, income tax on it, except in this case. This mm-hmm. is the one case, because I've had this come up when people said, um, hey, I got this from another producer and it's a mech. So I know I cannot take my the money back from it above my cost basis, but I'm just going to take it as a loan because loans are taxable. And I'm sorry, sorry if you read your contract, mm-hmm. it actually says in there that if it is a modified endowment contract, even loans are considered a taxable event. Which is the so main that, reason, in my opinion, to not make a policy if you're trying to use it for infinite banking purposes along the way. Correct. And so here's the thing. Um, you can, you, you'll know when it's illustrated, whether it's illustrated as a mech or not. And some of them won't mech until some material change happens, um, which might be well down the road. It might be seven, 17, 20, 25 years. You don't have to panic then because you can do a material change before that actually becomes a mech. So you can actually do a reduced paid up before it becomes a mech and everything's everything will be fine. Um, but what I've seen a lot of times when people call us, they've listened to the show and they call us and they say, I got I have this policy and it's it's now going to become a mech uh, next year or I can't put any more money and I can't believe this, you know, stones so forth. These are things you need to look at on the illustration to make sure that it says this policy is not a mech, or it may say this policy becomes a mech in year 26. And maybe you're okay with that because you're going to do a material change before that. Now, Rachel, you let's just briefly talk about, because you mentioned, why would a person want it to become a mech? Mm-hmm. Well, as you already mentioned, um, even a MEC contract, the death benefit gets passed along tax-free. So what a lot of people will do for estate planning, they will say, hey, I don't care if this is a modified endowment contract. I don't care if I stuff a lot of money into this. I'm not going to access that money. It's more important for me to get this death benefit up as high as I can possibly get it up. Because then upon my death, I'd like this to pass along to my heirs tax-free. In most cases, the reason they want that to be done is to pay for estate taxes um, from a leveraged up death benefit. So there are times uh, when people do this on purpose, because if you can stuff a lot more money into it, especially late as you're an older person, uh, you're you're going to cause it to become a modified endowment contract. But people don't care because they still know that the death benefit is going to be passed along tax-free. So I think the the real takeaway from this is that any policy has the potential to become a modified endowment contract if it's not watched over carefully and funded correctly. And so ultimately, there's that seven-pay test. There's another test. What do you call the other test, Bruce, um, when you're talking about the seven-pay test? 
there's two MEC tests, or is it just two seven-year windows? Well, anytime, yeah, anytime there's material change, the, the window starts over again. Oh, okay. For some reason, yeah. I, I thought you had shared it differently before. So that seven-year window at the beginning of the, the policy. The, the, when you, are you talking about the material change? That I guess I I guess I am. I, I thought the IRS yeah. had two different tests, but I guess it's the seven pay at the beginning of the policy and then seven years after any material change, which is a change in the death benefit. So if you're looking at not wanting to mech a policy, you can choose to fund a policy in a way that's not going to mech the policy. And again, that term rider is a huge part of making sure that you have your death benefit pulled up for a short time at the beginning in order to make sure that your death benefit's high enough for the premiums that you're putting in. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this on the show before, and this is, um, this is one of the reasons that you can actually, the higher you build the base, you can actually, because the base premium gets you more death benefit than PUA does. And the reason for that is the base premium is planned to be paid over the life of the contract. Some of the, some contracts are 10 years, some are 15, some are 20, some are 30, some are 40, some are all 120 years, 21 years of the contract. Um, PUAs are simply a single premium. So you're telling the insurance company, here's an additional whatever, $20,000. I never want to put another premium in this in this, how much life insurance can I have? Well, now they're spreading out that twenty thousand um, for the rest of their life. They're not planning on putting, so the death benefit can't quite possibly be as high because they know they're they're not going to get as additional premium. This is why, and we've had we've had uh, people on to talk about this. Uh, lower base premium contracts almost always come with with, with what's called a blended. PUA term rider. And what happens on those is in order to boost the death benefit up, they actually blend for, in most cases, 30 plus years, the term rider with the PUA. So every year a dividend is declared or you pay a PUA, the that's going to get you additional death benefit. So the death benefit should go up. But in a PUA term rider, the death benefit stays level. Why is that? Because every year you put a PUA in or you, you take your dividends to buy more PUA, they reduce the term by the, the same amount. So it stays flat. If the term does not, excuse me, if the dividend does not perform as well as illustrated, then it's not going to have as high of a PUA benefit. It's not going to buy as much PUAs. If that's the case, then the term rider cannot be bought out as much. And if it cannot be bought out as much, then what you're planning on putting into the policy, more of that will have to go to the term rider, which does not buy more cash value. And so you can have what's called a dividend call, which would be, and that's not an official term, but where you, you're saying, wait a minute, I thought I was going to have a lot more cash in here. Well, that's because it underperformed the dividends from low interest rates, which we all know there are low interest rates. Mm -hmm. And thus, if you want to have the same amount of cash value, 
you're going to have to put more premium into it. And so when everybody espouses this whole concept that there's only one way to build something, they're not taking into the fact that illustrations are simply snapshots in time and the, and the per performance of that illustration can either be greater or less than over the, the entire contract. And if that happens, you can have a change that could be material in nature that could cause the recalculation of the mech or for you to put more money in it, or if you don't put more money in it, then you're actually going to have less cash value. So this is why we tell people, you can't just look at illustrations, and compare illustrations and say, look, this one's better because are you dealing with a blended PUA or a term writer? Are you dealing with a company that has actually been uh, keeping their their dividend rate high and it's actually been having to lower it now the last few years? Are you dealing with a company that actually reacted to the interest rate environment, pulled it down, and now they're actually going up in, in the interest? You know, which company is being more responsible? Mm -hmm. And the, the company that reacts more quickly will actually be able to uh, be more beneficial in the future in most cases. So the modified endowment contract rules affect design in a variety of different ways. I really think that this episode, um, if you are, again, one of the big picture people who just wants to make sure it's an ideal policy and is ready to move forward, the the next step or the call to action for you would be make sure you're working with somebody who understands this fully. And if you're the person who really wants to unpack all the details first and, and fully understand a policy and the inner workings, then make sure that you dig into episodes like this who to to gain the information that you need to really make sure that the policy you're getting is the best type of policy. I think the biggest challenge that you face as a person getting started in infinite banking is figuring out who to work with and does this just sound really good up front or is it really truly going to benefit me for the long run? And I think the way that you solve that challenge is to make sure that you're working with somebody who truly understands and is willing to disclose what is happening inside of a policy. Maybe you don't need to know everything, but you need to be working with somebody who does understand that at that level. So if you're interested in considering infinite banking, or you have a whole life insurance policy that you have questions about, or you're in a position of saying, I want to make sure I'm working with the right person or need to make changes to current life insurance, please reach out to us. It's as simple as getting on our calendar. And that is a free conversation that you're able to have at no cost um, by talking to an advisor and really getting a feel for what infinite banking can do for you in your specific situation. Because based on your goals, your objectives, your financial picture, your family, your age, what you're trying to accomplish, your timelines, how much you're wanting to fund with, everyone's situation is completely unique. And it really comes down to designing a policy that is going to fulfill your objectives and improve every other area of your financial life the best. And that's going to look different from one person to the next. We did just get a question here on YouTube and we have time to be able to address this real quickly as we're wrapping up here. Do increases in the dividend benefit base or PUA more? The question is from Andre Biswa. Thank you for asking the question. Um, Bruce, I'll let you take this one. I know this is something that we talk about on a regular basis. Um, do increases in the dividend 
benefit base or PUA more? Yeah, I'm I, I'm hesitating because I I'm not quite sure what he's asking because the the base is set up a um, hundred to pay a hundred percent the the death benefit. Um, now I think where he might be going is are dividends uh, factored more with the base or PUAs? I think that's what he's asking. And Andre, yeah, and this, is, this, is, this, this is a this is a conversation that I've had, and I actually extrapolate this. Okay, so <laughs> dividends are basically not basically they are the profits of the company. And so, you know, you have expenses, you have um, the income, so on and so forth. But they also take into consideration the death benefit. So the higher the death benefit, the more the dividend is allocated towards the base premium because the base premium on a percentage, per, percentage it, you're going to get a higher death benefit on per thousand dollars of that particular uh, premium. And the, you can see this all the time. Um, a 40-year-old that puts in $20,000 in a PUA is going to get about four times that in death benefit. So they put $20,000, they get an $80,000 increase in their death benefit. However, if they put $20,000 a year into the base premium, they're going to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 12 times that uh, for the rest of their lives. So then the calculation, actually, uh, they, they pay the same dividend gross rate, but the calculation on that base premium, because it also includes the death benefit, is, is actually greater. And you can, you can see this easily on illustrations. So you can extrapolate this back. You can see that a projected dividend at the current interest rates that have a greater base uh, amount, the dividends are higher than it has a lower um, base amount. It's very easy to see, even if you don't know the, the calculation. And the reason we don't know the calculation is because these dividend calculations are proprietary for every one of these uh, insurance companies, they don't tell you how they're calculating. And for some reason, people get upset about that. You know, like, I can't believe they don't disclose that. Well, Walmart doesn't disclose how they put prices on their towels. And Coca-Cola doesn't disclose how they figure out the dividend payment for the Coca-Cola stock. I don't know why people get so bent out of shape all the time and why insurance companies don't disclose how they calculate dividends. It's just, it's just, it's proprietary. They don't want other people to know how they do it so that they can then take it and get a competitive advantage over them. Mm -hmm. You know, Andre, thank you for um, chiming back in here as well. And Bruce, thank you for sharing that. So Andre said, considering a 70s style inflationary environment, that was, he said that pretty early on as we were right. describing. And then just now he said that completely destroyed the 1090 nonsense. And Andre, yes, we've done uh, several podcasts on that concept as well. And so, yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree with that, Andre. And, you know, I believe that 1090 designs are a scarcity mindset. And because you hear this all the time, first of all, they have 
they say, well, what if I can't make my premium payment? This way, I only have to make uh, 10% of my base premium. Well, then the producer or the advisor is not doing a very good job of maximizing what you can do. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they don't understand that you you can actually surrender values to pay for your base premium. Um, the other thing, the other thing I think it does is yes, I agree, Andre, about that. But the other thing I think it does is it minimizes, it minimizes the death benefit. And they will they will show you all, oh, but look at this. Um, the death benefit is actually greater, you know, down the road. It will not be greater. Um, though in a rising interest rate environment. And I have actual policies that do this, that have showed this from the past. In a, in a dividend uh, environment that goes up, the death benefit actually goes up a lot greater. So both the cash value goes up and the death benefit goes up. Um, it's a very scarcity mindset, the 1090. And we frankly, we want people to be educated on it. But if you're doing it to simply harvest money out of it as soon as possible, then you're not really doing it, in our opinion, for the right reasons. And -hmm. and that's okay. Uh, Go do it with somebody else. We'll help people understand all the pros and cons of how how these things work. And uh, if you do believe that interest rates are going to change in the future, which they have always changed throughout the history of interest rates, then there's only really one place that they can go. They can stay flat for a while, which could actually be a problem for some of these companies. But the only place they really can go is is up. And I do believe, as we're seeing right now, we have an inflationary environment. And the 10-year treasury uh, earlier this week just went up uh, to, to its highest point in six months. And a lot of people think it's going to continue to go up. Excellent. Well, this is a really nice conversation at the end. Andre said at the end of the day, they're essentially TVM calculations, which that means time value of money. Um, And that is looking at the change of what a dollar looks like over time based on inflation. That's exactly right. Thanks, Andre. So thank you. Um, Thank you for being with us again on the show today. And if you are considering infinite banking, now is absolutely a time to get started um, I will just put one small clarification. Sometimes people are a little concerned that, well, maybe if the IRS has changed things in the past, they can just change things in the future. The good news is that whenever you have a policy, because they're con- contracts, uh, working with contractual guarantees and contractual law, they do not make changes to, to old policies. It's called grandfathering. So you have a policy under the current guidelines. You're not going to have new rules affecting that old policy. Bruce, is there any better way that we can clarify that? Well, I would say logically that won't happen. I don't necessarily trust Congress, but as Nelson used to say, um, you can you can change tax laws. They do it all the time. But if you change contract law, that's the essence of every civilization. And so the likelihood of them being able to change contract law is a lot less because you can't go back and tell a person, oh, you had this in the contract, but we're going to change it. A great example of that would be the COVID uh, insurance rules. Uh, President Trump, in a, in, a, in a way to try to get more people on his side during COVID, said, we're going to make these insurance companies pay for interrupted 
insurance, even though it doesn't say it's it actually there's an exemption in these insurance uh, contracts that say that pandemics are not covered. And he said, we're going to make we're going to make them pay. Well, he couldn't make them pay because it's contract law. And the reason it's not that the insurance companies were bad, the insurance companies would be glad to put it in there. But there's there's an increased risk. So there's going to be an increased premium. Mm-hmm. And so people are always balancing, do I want to pay this amount of premium for this type of risk? Life is all about risk evaluation. And um, they, the insurance companies have determined that people don't want to pay for that that uh, risk of a possible pan- pandemic shutting them down. So, And when you start your infinite banking policy, whole life, you have a guaranteed premium. And that guaranteed premium can't be guaranteed if there's factors that would have to be added to the risk at the insurance company level. Andre, again, changes to contracts signal a failed state insurance will be the least of your worries. True. I I love Andre. That's a great, that's a great comment. Uh, People say that all the time to me, Andre, they say, well, what happens if this happened, the government collapses and so on and so forth, aren't these going to be worthless? And I'm like, well, I think they'll be less worthless than where you have your, your money in other places. The dollar and why itself? Is that? Yeah. And, and why is that? It's because insurance companies actually have more money in reserve than they have promised in, you know, into the future. So at least they can cover um, their contracts. That money might be worthless, but it's going to be worthless everywhere. Mm-hmm. Ah. This is a good conversation and we'll we'll leave it here. So Andre, we'll see you next time. Um, anyone else who's listening live or after the fact, we would love to hear your questions if you want to drop them into the chat feature on, on live or into the comment section on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever you find us. We're also on Apple Podcasts and all the places that you find podcasts. Uh, a little bit of a, a delayed schedule there about, I think we're about eight weeks out right now before this releases on the podcast. So anywhere you find us, please go ahead and share your comments, share your feedback. Please like and um, subscribe wherever you're finding us. And please also go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review if you like this work. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time. In closing, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio.
Securities offered through Catalyst Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.